Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, everybody. I want to welcome you to this week's Matrix discussion group call. Matrix is in exiting the Matrix. Um, yeah. This beautiful Sunday, like I always open up, Sunday, the first day of the week, not the seventh, not the Sabbath. That's just kind of the very beginning where people started getting deceived on things. And that's what we're going to be digging in deep to this evening because what we see going on or what we think is happening isn't really what's happening. We're seeing stuff happening on the surface, and if you really pay attention, you'd pick up on it. Um, but most people don't because we consider everybody around us to be legit and on the up and up. Oh, I've got the best lawyer. He's the nicest guy. Da, da, da. He would never screw me. <laughs> and, but though, if you start even doing just a little cursory research and listen to the language being used, <clears throat> especially today with what's happening, listen to some of the language being used, language like, Oh, we're all suffering. Everybody is suffering. Now, this is painful. Painful for, you know, things like that. You start going, wait a second. There's something else happening here. And I think what we are seeing today is really coming more to the surface of what's been going on for quite a while. Um, and it really falls into surfacing. And I posted a link this evening uh, into Tactical Sovereignty Administrating the State, which is the group, that talked about how the U.S. has gone from a manufacturing nation into a servicing nation. And there's a big reason for that. Um, and I'll get into that later. But tonight we have our guest on this evening, uh, Trey Bean. Um, I just want to remind people on the onset here that if you go into the description box for tonight's podcast, I put her new YouTube channel in there. I would recommend jumping on there. Um, I also have a playlist on my channel called uh, Hidden Gnosis of the System with some particular info that I picked out mostly from her and a couple other people. You can find more information there if you're interested on what we discussed this evening. But uh, with no further ado, how are you doing this evening, Trey? Doing good. Living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, living the, living the dream, you know, among kind of the nightmare that a lot of other people are going through. And I can understand that they're going through mm -hmm. it, but <clears throat> a lot of this goes into word description. I think one of the last videos that you put on your channel, you were getting into word description. And I even commented on there because they keep telling us, oh, suffering, we're all suffering. That word has been contorted. Suffering doesn't mean you're feeling pain. Suffering means you've accepted something. Right. And, you know, and I think I even posted um, something a while ago. 
it said, you know, no, I'm not suffering. Suffering is a choice that you make. Uh, my emails all have a tag at the end that say, pain is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. I have so many people argue with me about that because they want to follow today's common thought of what suffer is. Well, and yeah, and that was... Uh, way it's used. Yeah, one of the videos where I go over the difference between a victim and an offender. I haven't gotten into detail with that yet, but I'm going to go into details in the video. It's this victim mentality, a victim meaning it's a peaceful, the peaceful person and not the aggressor, right? So that makes sense, but what happens when you get into the courtroom is that we're not qualifying the complaining person as being a bona fide victim. A bona fide victim may have been offended by a specific behavior. However, we have to qualify a couple of different things about the victim before the court can even take jurisdiction. And they don't even make any attempt at doing that before bringing an action. The court makes no attempt to um, assure that the proper qualifications were done before taking the, the case on. And the defense attorney makes no attempt to provide you with a proper defense against the claims of the victim by what they should be doing is discrediting the victim from, from jump. And this is not something they ever, ever do. I've dug and dug and dug for cases. I can't find any. It's just not something they do. So those videos that I'm doing right now are really just a overview foundation to help people understand some basic concepts. So for like you, it's probably mundane information. You probably already get it. But um, I'm trying to bring people to a position where they at least get the overall big picture understanding and then it will make their studying easier as they come into under, uh, into that understanding. So hopefully it's it's having that effect. I've gotten a lot of good feedback um, for previous videos and stuff um, that I've done where people are like, wow, you made sense of things. And that's kind of what my goal is right now. But I think even if you're intermediate studier or even an advanced person, I still think that you could still find some nuggets in there that you may not have known you know, in your own course of, of, of this path you've decided to take, right? So hopefully it comes across in a way that um, is valuable to everybody who listens. Because that's one thing I hate. I know I, my videos are kind of long. I'm wordy. <laughs> so I hope it'll bore everybody. But the point behind it is that the average Joe can come in, listen to it, and say, that makes sense. And then I'm showing you what I'm reading from so that you can also read along with me or look up your own statutes to see why I've come up with those conclusions and theories. And hopefully that helps people out because we can't keep going yeah. this route. If, if we don't step in, if people don't start to come awake, at least just to the bare minimum things, uh, we are doomed. As much as I like to say, I'm, I, I know my stuff. I can defend myself all day long. It's not going to do me any good if I have to keep defending myself every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And <clears throat> you and I didn't speak prior to this recording. In fact, I don't think we've ever spoke uh, off from a recording in, in, in private. But I, I think maybe a good thing to do here would be to hit on maybe a couple specific topics that more people are familiar with. And at the same time, while people listen to this, I would like you to 
equate what's going on. Even if you have aren't going through these topics, you can equate the things that are being said to things you have gone through or your friends have gone through. Um, the, the, the language to me is one of the very obvious things. And one of the things that stuck out with me, um, one situation I was in as a, a guardian for someone, I was listening to them talk. And instead of them referring to the individual who I was guardian for as maybe the subject or just call him by name or anything, they referred to him as the consumer. Well, where do you see a consumer at? You see a consumer in a servicing relationship. So how about if we go into, um, say, maybe divorce or child custody or child protection? Maybe go specifically into those um, things. Well, what I'm going to explain to you guys today is what's called the community caretaking function. This applies to the police. It applies to the courts that you're in. It applies to CPS agencies. So although I talk a lot about the police, each agency represents the same thing when they're conducting this community caretaking function. Each agency is actually a member of the um, intelligence community. So all of them are doing the same thing ultimately. They're all trying to gather behavioral data about you so that they can develop behavioral research science so they can predict what exactly someone is going to do before they do it so that they can um, give a, an outcome that is better for the victim involved in a particular circumstance and so that they can improve the outcome of the offender in every circumstance. So all this data is collected under the community caretaking function of all these agents. It doesn't matter if it's police. It doesn't matter if it's CPS. Their duty, their job is to get you to talk and to collect that information because the universities pay them to get that information. And it's done through philanthropy. So philanthropists donate X amount of money because they want a specific topic to be researched. This money gets filtered or, or passed through the university. And then the university disperses that money out to various community uh, agencies. And this is why we're in this, what is what you call the service um, new kind of found, I guess we're not an industry, but in, what would you call that? It's called the PhD standard to be specific. The PhD, so the PhD standard is basically the reliance upon experts instead of the people. So we stopped relying on the people to make self-determination because we considered them to be imbeciles back in 1925, Buck versus is Buck versus Bell. In Buck versus Bell, that holding remains today. It's never been overturned. So what they said is that we've had three generations of imbeciles in this country, and that is enough. So instead of relying on people to determine for themselves what is offensive or not offensive, we now rely upon experts to do that. That's the PhD standard. So through our representatives, we may have a voice but that voice is pretty insignificant because those representatives will still only rely upon what the experts say about the circumstance. And this is what we call committees in our legislative body. 
So all those committees are filled with a panel of experts, the PhD standard, and then those experts will decide what is right or wrong for us because they don't believe that we have the ability to deci decide what right or wrong is, right? So when you're in the courts, what you notice, and then I sat in a traffic court and it blew my mind as I watched it, is you see these people sitting in the, in the stand there, the podiums, and the judge interrogating them and asking them a bunch of questions. Well, that's an investigative function. That's an executive function. It's a function for law enforcement officials. This is not where an investigation is supposed to occur. So in my opinion, they are violating the separation of powers or they're simulating a legal process and that's not really a court, but you can't have it. You can't have it both ways. It's one or the other, right? So if you're being interrogated by a judge and they're trying to, to get information out of you, what was the point of having a police officer involved or a CPS agent involved? When, isn't that supposed to be their job? They should be coming to the court with full information that sets, up, that sets their case up for success but they don't. Instead, we move on to the court process and we, we're using the courts to assist in the investigation to find further information that will help them establish a relationship with you and an associative personality disorder class. So officers in conducting this community community caretaking function is really what I wanted to focus on today because like there's there's videos out there that I've started to put up to help you better understand that a person is somebody who or not a somebody it's a thing that <laughs> has already been deemed guilty of being offensive so it's the spirit of law right a behavior is is the spirit so the this, this behavior has already been adjudged by your peers to be guilty because they have felt offended by those behaviors as a whole or as a majority and that's how they create the legislation that's why there's no innocent plea you can only plead guilty or not guilty because somebody has already witnessed you conducting your way your your behavior in a manner that has already been deemed guilty by statute as being offensive. So we know that the behavior was there because someone saw it and they're witnessing it, but now you can't really be innocent because we saw that, but you can't, you can only choose not guilty, not guilty because maybe you didn't intend to offend. Maybe you didn't intend to do harm. So it's all based on what were your intentions when, when you were seen conducting yourself in this way. And that's why they look for intent, mens rea, and all those things that we know about. But in the end, what we're not doing is we're not, uh, we're not challenging the fact that you're associating me with a specific class of persons. And that's what the cop's job is, or the, or the CPS agent, that's what their job is. And because they know they don't know how to do their job right, they use the courts to help them with that. All right, so community caretaking function is actually uh, a private function. This is so if a cop or a CPS agent approaches you, they're actually not in their official capacity at the time. So if we look at the police, what they have going on for them is they are supposed to have two specific things that they are authorized by law to do. 
Number one is direct traffic. And number two is to um, conduct investigations into crimes in order to prevent those crimes, right? So we'll focus on the traffic side because I think this is probably what most people understand the best. So if we are in our vehicles, if I'm a cop inside of an, a vehicle with those oscillating lights on top, this is me conducting my traffic direction duty. That's what my obligation is to the public in my specific community. So a village will hire me and now I'm wearing my emergency response hat. And how that is supposed to work as authorized by law is that someone will call to report an emergency has occurred. The cop should get into his car, turn on the lights and work his way over to that emergency quickly so that he can stop whatever's happening from happening. It could be a traffic accident. And this is when he's authorized by law to actually perform his duties in that car. So he might show up to the accident and he might park his car with the lights on to protect the people who were crashed into each other. And he might stand outside to, you know, make everybody drive around. That's his directing traffic. This is the same function and the same thing that he's doing when he drives up behind you. So when he's in that car, the law provides the only time he's allowed to use that car is in an emergency situation. If there is no phone call into the police department complaining of an emergency, then that means he shouldn't even be in that car. He should be on his feet. And this is how we developed what was called the beat. It is the community caretaking function by which he is supposed to be promoting the relationship and improving the relationship between the community and the police officials. This was not intended for him to pretend he had authority in the emergency hat to pursue somebody in a traffic stop. It's not what he has authority to do. That's why it gets confusing when you look at the traffic code because it tells you what your obligations are in there. It says that you have to stop when an emergency vehicle puts their lights on and gives you direction. And that's what the cop did. He gave you direction. But if he is not responding, then he's the aggressor. And that's outside the scope of his authority. Now, that community caretaking function where the trick comes in is that if he were on his beat, he would be able to just walk through the neighborhood and say, hello, how you doing? This is why we get Supreme Court rulings that say it's constitutional for a cop to talk to you. It is it's constitutional for him to question you because it's not unconstitutional for any person to walk down the street and, and start up a conversation. He's just like you and me. When he's on the beat, this is not an authorized position, meaning it is voluntary and he gets paid for it from the university. So when you're thinking about any agent of state that asks you for information, any personal information at all, these are data collectors and they're doing a community caretaking function. And where this comes from is, uh, what's his face? I can't think of the president's name, Lyndon. President Lyndon, give me a kick on the pants. I forget what his name was. Um, but anyways, the president at the time when all this first began, 
declared a Lyndon, war on poverty. Huh? Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah, Lyndon, Lyndon B. Johnson. That's that. There you go. So Lyndon B. Johnson declared a war on poverty. And when he declared that war on poverty, it was basically what it means is that poverty has now become the enemy. And we need to seek this enemy out and destroy it. So anybody who is doing business with that enemy, it also becomes an enemy of the state as well. Which is why we'll find that when you're dealing with something like CPS or police officers, then we kick off other wars. So war against crime, war against um, uh, violence against women and children, those kinds of wars always end up in a poor community because of the war on poverty. So the war on poverty is basically saying in a nutshell that we can rely upon the fact that most crimes and most child abuse cases are going to be inside of an impoverished community. So what they do is they target that community to place agencies that are placed there to conduct research behavioral research about said community, CPS police officers. Now, <laughs> it sounds good for those of the people out there sitting in, in middle class, they're feeling like, oh, well, that's too bad for the poor people. Oh, no, no, no. We've already completed the research on the poor people and you're next. So you're not getting out of that one. So what they've done is through uh, gentrification process, they open up these neighborhoods that they consider to be poor and anyone who's in that neighborhood that makes the neighborhood look poor has to go. And that's the whole point of opening up the beat. It's not to protect anybody. It was to get the poor people out of the community for the gentrification purpose in order to make the neighborhood look like it had dignity and that it cared about itself and the people in there cared about their community but what they do is they come in like a gift horse and say we're going to give you these services to help increase your opportunity to get a job increase your opportunity to um, be a better person through aa services or through um, parenting services and all these different things and what it evolved into was the court being a sales platform for it so when you get in there, I mean, any court you're in, you, you have something, a neglect, abuse case, a marriage case, a police case. The first thing that happens in those courtrooms is what services can we give you? In marriage, it'll be mediation. CPS, it'll be parenting classes and reunification classes. And, you know, driving, it'll be DUI classes. Domestic violence, you'll get anger management classes. All of those are psychological services that over the years of research surfaced because they were trying to make it so a lesser punishment could be imposed upon somebody being accused of an offense because they know the offenses that they're accusing people of are mostly caca. That's why. But it's, it's lucrative. It's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry and only a handful of corporations run that industry. So while you go to your you know, DUI man, uh, services or your anger management services, what do you do in there? You tell them everything about you. You tell them all the things you experience. You open up 
and the person sitting in front of you, the professional, is taking observational notes. And they're giving those notes over to the university to do a uh, forensic analysis of all the people who have reported having an alcohol problem or whatever. And then they develop this profile and this pattern of behavior so that they can determine um, what these kinds of people normally are like, what kind of personality behavior do they all relate to with each other. So now you have an associative personality trait of someone in that class. So that's why the person is an association, not a corporation. Because they, they're, what they're saying is that the person that they're saying is the offender has a disassociative personality disorder. Because you've disassociated with your consciousness in order to determine if what you were doing was right or wrong. And that's why you need services. So it doesn't matter if it's police or not, or like I said, or agencies, this is how they do it. And it's lucrative. When they're wearing the community caretaking hat, they are considered to be volunteering to do that. So if the cop is in his car and he is not doing his professional duty as an emergency response responder, and he happens to identify you, say, with your sticker expired, and he gets you to pull over, and now he gets out of the car. Once his feet touch the street, he left that official capacity. He is now in his private capacity as a community caretaker because his intent is to get information from you that he can report on his police report, uh, giving them the observations of your behavior. That's why when he comes up to the car, he says, do you know why I pulled you over? And sure. do you understand? Huh? I want to add something to that right there. And people don't realize this, and you're hitting on it, is that you said when he steps out of his car and his feet hit the street, he's now stepping into another capacity. When officers mm -hmm. are writing tickets and doing things like that alongside the road, those actually get logged under what's called training hours. And they get a separate pay for training hours. So they fall into another category, just like you said. Go ahead, dear. Yeah, so the, I'll read it for you from the Illinois 720 ILCS 52-3.5, section 2-3.5. Community policing volunteer means a person who is summoned or directed by a peace officer or any person actively participating in a community policing program and who is engaged in lawful conduct intended to assist any unit of government in enforcing any criminal or civil law. For the purpose of this section, community policing program means any plan, system, or strategy established by and conducted under the auspices of law enforcement agencies in which citizens participate with and are guided by the law enforcement agency and work with members of that agency to reduce and prevent crime within a defined geographic area. So what they're saying here is that somebody summoned you to help them establish justice, which is a constitutional duty. <laughs> so we need to establish justice. How do we establish justice? A citizen must participate with 
somebody who seeks to enforce law. How do we know that we're helping him do that? Because he's going to ask you, do you know why I pulled you over? And you are going to say, oh, yeah, uh, I was speeding. So now you and the cop both agree that speeding is offensive. And we both agree now that with all those people he's ever pulled over who felt guilty for speeding, they all put they all cast their vote that most people find speeding to be offensive. Otherwise, you wouldn't sing like a canary and you wouldn't sit there feeling bad about it or guilty. You would have remained silent. So now he can put this into his leads database so that he can show that you, in fact, admitted this guilty feeling that your behavior was so offensive, you felt the need to confess, basically. And with every person who is willing to participate voluntarily when being summoned by him or directed by him to help him as a law enforcement agency develop the law, enforce the law, now we've actually participated in a data collection or community caretaking function with the officer because all of us have the same concept in mind. We all want to make sure that justice is established and that justice is served in our country. So this is the point of why they pull you over that way. Now, if you're dealing in, say, um, a marriage situation, a divorce situation, the licenses are directly relatable. So a driver's license and a marriage license have the same basic purpose. We are entering in and evidencing the fact that we have established a relationship with an intelligence-based department. So if it's a driver's license, we can now say, as a matter of fact, you have established a relationship with the Department of Transportation, right? So because you have an established relationship with them, then we know in that relationship, there must be duties and obligations that you promised you would perform specific. So we know that by choice of law doctrine, we've chosen to follow the statutory code when it comes to traffic and uh, direction. So that established relationship creates the person driver. Once that relationship has been established, now we have to define who the parties are. The party is a driver. And that driver has agreed to allow for the officer to do anything that goes into that statute. So if they redefine in statute that they're going to search your license plate and you never say anything about it, that means you permitted it. So that's a change of contract, basically. They, they're just amending a contract over and over and over again and we never say anything. So now all of a sudden we're like, wait a minute, I never agreed to partake in these research projects. You probably did because it's sitting here in the statute. You just didn't know you did. And they don't have to individually contact everybody. You know, it's, it's put in a statute. You know where the statute is, you should be able to find it. That's how they see it. That's notice. So all those terms and conditions that are laid out in the statute are basically what you agreed to follow. And the marriage license <laughs> is actually the same thing. When you registered or when you put your records into the court system in exchange for that license, 
what you're saying is that when you get a divorce, when you separate, when you don't want to be with each other anymore, by choice of law, you're going to use this system to separate you because you are agreeing to participate in community research so that we can keep a census about how many people get married, how long they stay married, how many children they have, because that's the first thing that happens when you get into that courtroom. If you're getting a divorce, they want to know your life story. You go see a mediator and you spew all kinds of private information into their ear and they're sitting there doing what? Taking notes and observations. Those observational notes go into the Department of Family and uh, Health Services, an intellectual or uh, intelligence community. And all of that information is kept under identifier numbers so that they can proclaim they never invaded your privacy. Well, we didn't use your name, so we didn't invade your privacy because no one knows who you are. They just know the number, which is caca. Well, my videos will show more about that later as well. But that's the whole point of the community policing or the community caretaking function. So to go a little bit more into depth about how that came to be through the gentrification system, I have um, a, uh, what do you call it, a, a law journal that breaks it down quite nicely. And I'm going to put the link up. I'll give it to you as well, Brian, so that if you want to read this, you can. It explains to you <laughs> that everything they're doing is for the betterment of the community. So when you see those words protect and serve, or when you see the words child protective agency, it doesn't mean specifically you. It means we're protecting the community from you. So if you have engaged with the enemy called poverty, now we know you're suspicious and that creates what's called a suspect class of persons, right? So now if you have been observed or witnessed for being involved with the behavioral conduct of an abuser or a neglector, that means that you are doing business with somebody we declared war on, people who commit crimes against women and children. This is where predictive analysis kicks in and what we would otherwise call reasonable suspicion and probable cause. So the reasonable suspicion is really engaging you to associate you with this particular behavioral class of unconscious peoples, dead entities. So to the betterment of the community as defined in this law journal explains that there were visible signs of poverty. This is specific to Chicago. Now I grew up in those poverty neighborhoods. So I'm here to tell you, I watched this with my own eyes and you don't realize it when you're watching it. But now that I look back on it, knowing this, I'm like, wow, that makes total sense. So when there's visible signs of poverty, because we know there's a lot of enemies inside of there doing business with poverty, we can, take or leverage the power of the state and increase the, the police power in that particular neighborhood because we know we have all these enemies there. So this is why we start to see more police in that area and more police aggression because they're giving that, they're asserting that war power in a sense. So now hey, you Jay, have, uh-huh. Didn't uh, Governor de Blasio just come out a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, and say something about 
oh, we're putting all our police power in these areas, in these poor neighborhoods. And I was like, yes, yes. Nobody, nobody picked up doing, on that. Well, that's not new. <laughs> From a girl who grew up in that neighborhood that he's talking about, I guarantee you it's always been that way. We would be at the park playing basketball, a bunch of people, when they started to gentrify the area. So we would be at the park that we always play basketball in. You know, we'd hang out. Some of the people had kids there. Moms are there. Dads are there playing baseball. We're barbecuing. And the police would roll up and just start harassing us inside of a park, you know, because they didn't want those impoverished people showing that the the area somehow was uncared for. So you don't have to, you don't, in this community caretaking thing, you don't have to be breaking a law. All you have to do is look offensive, look like something less than middle class. And that's the reason that they would come in and start harassing people and, and just arresting people. I sat there watching one of my friends at one point, her children were freaking out because they grabbed his father for no reason, slammed him up on the car, handcuffed him. The kids want to fight, you know, <laughs> trying to protect their dad. And she had to pull them back and they end up trying to arrest her too because they're trying to um, give the neighborhood a certain look. And that's what they consider to be protecting the community based on the broken window theory. So the broken window theory tells us that when a neighborhood has a bunch of broken windows, that it gives an appearance that nobody cares about the neighborhood. And they conducted research at that time to determine why that particular neighborhood was so um, civilly unrested because they were constantly complaining about how the police weren't coming in and so forth and so on. And what they found is that the people were calling for help because they were afraid, but the people they were calling on weren't actually committing any crimes. So that's why they upped the police power, created the beat so that the cops could just be walking around in order to promote a better relationship with those people so that they would stop complaining about the police, not because they cared about the people, but because they were protecting the reputation it's because the stuff kept hitting the media. If the word kept spreading that the police are horrible people and they didn't want that. So they had to figure out a way to calm the people down. And they found that by just putting some guys on the beat made the people feel like they were cared for. They fixed the windows in the neighborhood and that made the people become more active in the neighborhood to show that they cared about it. So <clears throat> you can look up more about the broken window theory. You can Google it. It's, it's quite amazing to read. And it explains to you that also what they found on the police side was that they were disgusted in that neighborhood, the neighborhood's people. And that they did, they were like, you know what, you can have each other. They look at you that way today. That's how they see everybody. And again, like I said, it, it started out with poverty, but it is no longer the targeted class. Middle class is now targeted as well. So you're gonna start seeing an increase of civil unrest because that smaller poverty class is no longer the only ones affected by this. Now it's expanded into the middle class areas and they're starting to get sick of it. But the, yeah, the concept absolutely. of it, yeah, the I, concept I, of it is to make, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. I, there's just something that popped in my head. Yeah. They're really looking at everybody as one, just like e pluribus unum that's stamped on your coin. Um, I remember, Quite a few years ago, I was in jail, 
And outside of my cell, there was 12 or so officers all just kind of chit-chatting. And what I got off from their conversation was that there was two classes of people. Um, people that they've arrested and people they haven't arrested yet. And yeah. when, you're ta- when you're talking about behavior modification, people don't, I really want people listening to this to realize this is all about identifying behavior. That's what they're doing. I, w- I was sitting with uh, a group of gentlemen a few months ago, and I've mentioned this before, and one of them brought up that, you know, he had hit a bump, he was pulling a trailer, and that trailer twisted and caused a little damage and put him in the ditch. But he was thankful it didn't harm another vehicle or any other private property, so it wasn't going to go against his driving record. And I asked him, I said, well, did the police show up and write a report? He said, oh, yeah, they showed up. And I looked over at one of the other gentlemen in the group, a friend of mine by the name of Mike, who owns an insurance company. And I just kind of smiled. And he said, what are you smiling about? And Mike spoke up. He says, yeah, that is going to go against your record. Because what that does is that gets reported through LexisNexis. And that puts you in a category of possible um, bad behavior. You know, put it that way, or put you in a classification yeah, of risky, abuse. risky behavior, and so mm-hmm. yeah, that will make your insurance go up. It doesn't matter. So anyway, go ahead, Jay. Yeah. So what I found additional to all that, I mean, a lot of the stuff I've explained, but um, what I found really cool about all of this was what was called um, positive protesting. I think it was. I'm pulling it up right now. So. There are two types of people in the community, and where this was developed is that, like I said, if, if, if you've grown up in a neighborhood like I did, we had a lot of different people on the street. We had drug addicts running around. We had uh, beggars, homeless people, and all of those people in that community would want to work for food or for money. So you might have some of the people that were addicted to drugs Uh, sitting at the car wash and when you come out of the car wash they would dry your car off and you give them a few bucks right Uh, you had gentlemen sitting on the side maybe offering labor services and this journal that I'm gonna give you explains that so they they would be outside and asking to do some landscaping work or some moving you know, of furniture, and they would make like a couple hundred bucks. So they would sit up there trying to make a, a living for themselves. And this community caretaking function was starting to push them out of the neighborhood, and they were just, you know, breaking it up, making arrests. Um, it didn't matter what you were doing out there. The idea of it, they would accuse you of being a drug addict, even if you were just a guy who was trying to f- feed your family and couldn't get a job. So when they did the research on that and they found that these these people, some of them were saying like, look, not everybody here on the sidewalk are bad people. So it explains that some of them had been out there for 20 years and been married. They had a home, everything going on, but they were just this is the way that they leveraged business for themselves to do basic labor jobs. So when that had occurred and they they started to push them out, the whole concept behind getting them off the street was because they didn't like the way it looked. They they decided at some point that it was disturbing 
the peace of the rest of the neighborhood, which I'm going to disagree with. I, I mean, I lived in those neighborhoods. I'm here to tell you something. We took care of all those people. I mean, sometimes they're a nuisance. Yeah, they annoy you. But when we have people that would come up to us, we had this one guy crazy, right? He would come up to us and ask for a cigarette or something to eat. And we'd make him sing the unicorn song. And we all took care of him like that. Like everybody in the neighborhood took care of him. If someone tried to hurt him, anybody from the neighborhood would have jumped in for and had tried to help him. So I don't know where they get the concept of the neighborhood was was annoyed by them. There could only be one group that was annoyed by them, and that would be the upper echelon, the upper class. And there wasn't anybody living in the neighborhood at that time that would have been so upset, you know. So as we get into the gentrification, what happens now is the yuppies started moving in. You know, some of the people started to purchase homes at a low rate and then they start, now they start to congregate with each other and now they feel afraid by this scary look of people on the street who are pandering for jobs, money or whatever. Well, you moved here. We didn't move by you. Deal with it, right? But for some reason, it turns into this war on poverty get these people out of here because the whole point of it is for the betterment of the community. And that's who they serve and that's who they protect. And these are called either positive loiterers or negative loiterers. So a positive loiterer is created through organization, through association. A negative loiterer is somebody like those gentlemen I just described that are out there looking to get jobs or money because they're not a part of an organization. It means that there's, if, if they do harm someone, there's no one to go to, 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 to collect on any injury that they actually provided to someone. Right? So a positive loiterer is what we know of now as those organized protesters, right? So a positive loiterer is a part of an organization that is established to protest or to do things amongst the community, to do services for the community, for the betterment of the community, not for one's self. So the way they see it is the guy out there who's selling his labor services to feed his family is a negative loiterer because he's doing it for himself and he's an eyesore. But if he were to develop a group that created opportunities within the community, he would have more rights by than he would by himself for being a positive loiterer. So that's what they protect. They don't protect an individual. And if you think about it logically, if someone comes to your house to kill you, they don't show up until after you've been hurt. Can't get on the phone. There's nothing you could do about it. These people don't protect you from harm. They can't get there in the middle of the point you're getting harmed. There's no, it's almost impossible. They only get there to help serve justice on the perpetrator, on the offender, but not because they want to help you, because they want to take that guy out of the community, because when the people find out that that guy exists in the community, they will become unrested. They might get loud and obnoxious and therefore disturb the peace. And that's all they're supposed to be doing. When they 
when we talk uh, CPS agents, same concept is that the community finds certain behaviors offensive. So I'm reading a journal the other day, <laughs> and it explains that they're going after Mexico now. So the way this so-called scientist who's supposed to have no emotions and, you know, supposed to be uh, impartial in her research seemingly is appalled by the fact that children had been uh, known to report a mother slapping them or a mother spanking them, but they use these words in a way that make it sound horrific so that they can put that information into the public, have the public think that these parents are just beating the bejesus out of their children, when in reality, if you're familiar with the culture, Mexican moms, Puerto Rican moms, even their Polish moms, they will pull their shoe off and beat you with it <laughs> because that's like that that's just kind of a cultural thing. It sounds horrible when I say it, but the shoe is usually just cheap rubber. We're not talking about a hard shoe. It doesn't hurt. It's just a shock to the system. <laughs> Make you say, okay, I hear you, you know, but the way that they are portraying it in the public is deliberate <clears throat> because they want the public to, to believe that these children are being severely abused when that's not at all the tr truth. You can speak to any Mexican person on this planet and they will tell you they got the chancla, the sandal, and they still love their mothers. And they still would never want to have been separated from their mothers. But this is the setup. <clears throat> Why do they know how mothers in Mexico do business with their children? Because they spied on them, just like we're talking about now. That has been the entire reasoning behind police intervention, was simply to spy on people so that they could create other services like CPS. And all those awesome services that they provide you all day long that provide you with no benefit and have no value. Let's face it. It sounds good on paper. But if we're talking about DUI classes, domestic violence classes, how many people actually come out of those classes feeling re renewed? How many people do they actually save? Most people who have a problem with drinking or drugs, it takes more than one time. It takes years for someone to, to keep trying and trying and trying. So are those classes really as effective as they want the public to believe? I don't know, I don't know. I've known people who've done well with those classes, but typically it's like after 10 times of taking the class, you just have to be ready. You have to be open to it. But these are the types of services that they want to show we're helping you. Here's the gift horse. And then at the same time, they're not telling you that they've spied on the community for some very basic, basic cultural things and want to remove that cultural belief out of the system. And that's what's called cultural genocide. So we know from that, uh, that, that particular journal I was reading that they've established a profile of the Mexican mother. And they specified mother, by the way, for whatever reason, fathers weren't included in that, that research, but they said that the mothers of Mexico uh, slap their children in the face, um, hit them with their open hand, lose their tempers, and beat their children, and all these horrific things. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that doesn't ever happen, but I'm saying that's not the majority, because in the same breath, 
that same research explains that they only have 23 agencies that they opened up across the entire country. And of those 23 agencies, they've only had about a couple of hundred people that they were able to leverage information from, from each agency. So I think it added up, if I remember correctly, like a total of 500, it was a really small number. And then went on to say that they believe that over 11 million children in Mexico are being abused and overlooked in these various ways of beatings that they're taking from mothers. 11, you talk to 500 people and somehow with your scientific professional knowledge, you come up with the fact that there are 11 million children right now being abused by Mexican mothers. Where did you, where did you draw that number from? But they embellish on that on purpose because it gives a sense of urgency to the community because as of right now, I've spoken to people in Mexico specifically about child protective services. I went out there and I talked to many people about it. They are appalled by the very idea. They told me how they felt it was the stupidest thing they've ever heard. They're like, what is that about? You know, I explained to them how, how the children are taken for neglect, how they're taken for you know, minor abuses, and they thought that was the worst thing they ever heard of and how they never would want to be here and ever have to deal with that. So why are we trying to shove that down their throat when the science is clearly junk? So these reports that they're doing through the Leeds database, we can't even rely on them being accurate because a lot of times they don't actually report anything or they report false information. But <clears throat> now we have all these different programs, there's so many. Every time you speak to an agent of the state of any kind and they ask you for any information about you, it's because they're doing human subject research. They're trying to develop profiles that create legislation that what happens to all that information now is that we have this controversy, right? This question. So what you're gonna see happen, mark my words, what you're gonna see happen in Mexico now is you're gonna start seeing advertisements on television through the news where they will show an, a, a case of abuse that is like the most outrageous, horrible thing you could ever see. They'll put it all over all the news systems so that they will get the people to do what's called the buy-in process. All these people will buy in because they're gonna see this child who was horribly abused and justice didn't serve this child. So now they're gonna say yes, we need more child abuse investigators because we don't want to see that happen to that kid. Then they'll tell them, oh, 11 million kids in Mexico are abused every day, just like this one. So now people will ask for them to incorporate these services and permit these services to start going into their communities. These, communi these are community-based participatory research. They can't be there unless the community permits it. So each Mexican community will now say, yeah, that's a great idea. We need, we need to have those services. And it'll start out nice. It'll start out nice. They really will only seek out the abused children. Because right now, Mexican law, not only do they permit you hitting your kids, they will help you. So if you actually were to spank your child and your child still did not conform and was still not obedient, the Mexican government provides services to help get your child in line. That's how they do it. But we're, they're trying to change that now. So when they put those CPS agencies in there, ultimately what they want to see 
is that a parent will never put their hands on a child ever for any reason at all whatsoever. But then you also are going to have the uh, broad description of neglect. If your kid's drinking too much soda pop, he might become obese. Being obese is considered neglect. If you don't let the doctor decide how to treat the child or try to get a second opinion, that is medical neglect. So it opens up the door for all those things that the Mexican people are not used to at this point and really are appalled by. So I know when these people come in with this community caretaking nonsense, the Mexicans are not going to be real happy with it. So hopefully they'll stand up to it really strong and really powerful. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to be doing some of these in Spanish so that we can inform them of what's coming. But wow. anyways, that's, that's the community that's an caretaking. Awesome idea. That's yeah. an awesome idea, uh -huh. Trey, putting it in Spanish. I, I love that idea. You know, I think people... I don't want to this realize, to happen to them. This happens to us. Right, absolutely. Uh, that is, to me, a form of euthanizing a nation. You know what I mean? It, it um, is. It's, I, it's literally I, called cultural genocide. Yeah, it is. It's corporal genocide. It, there was a situation I had a number of years ago <clears throat> where um, the girl I was with told her daughter to do something repeatedly. And the girl was ignoring her, just laying on the floor with her elbows on the floor with her head in her hands watching TV, wasn't paying any attention to her mom. And so it, her mom was telling her, it's your turn to do the dishes. So I like picked her up, walked her into the kitchen. And because I had touched her I or whatever, I don't know, one of the other siblings decided to call the police. And the police came. And the police said to her, said, uh, well, did he slap you? No. Well, did he spank you? No. And the officer said, well, you know what? If it was me, I would have whipped your butt. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it, it was kind of cool to hear an officer actually, yeah, because. That's how it should be. That's the way it because should be. Because what happens exactly. is when they complain that you don't have control over your kids and because your kid's you know, it, out of control, let's give them drugs. <laughs> yeah. And because your kid's out of control. Because your kid's out of control, there must be a behavioral issue with you. So, therefore, you need to go to some classes. And these classes, people need to realize, these classes aren't just arbitrary things that the courts, like, look through the phone book and, oh, let's pick this one. We'll send you this. No. This was told to us years ago. We know that TV and the news and movies have predicted things for years before, well, actually, when it is happening. But... They've let us know it's happening, and that's going to be happening. I, I remember seeing a episode. I'm not a TV watcher. Never was. Still am not. I don't even have a TV now today. But I remember an episode of Law & Order where a New Jersey judge got nailed because every kid that came through his path in juvenile court, he was sending to one home or another home. And they ended up busting him. Because they found out that this judge had a fiduciary interest in these homes. And it, it was interesting, about four or five years after that TV episode came out, there was actually a New Jersey judge who was nailed for doing that same exact thing. These people are not doing these things. 
because they care about your behavior. It's because they're going to profit off your behavior. The judge yeah. isn't sending you to a specific DUI class or course to help you. It's because he has a vested interest in that situation. Yeah. In a domestic violence case that we're working on, we found that the judge actually owns the medical health, or not owns, I'm sorry, he has a stock in the medical facility for which he referred this man's kid to. Yeah. Talk about motive. Hey, guys, there's a uh, county in um, Ohio, Cuyahoga County, that I've done some research on. And the, the uh, entire family... Uh, court system over there is run by the uh, county prosecutor um, Thomas O'Malley. Um, Jennifer O'Malley is a um, child support and child custody um, magistrate or judge. And then there's a Michael O'Malley who is an uncle and uh, a, a brother, I believe, to Thomas O'Malley. Now, this is just the family court. If you look on the rest of the schedule of the court, you'll see relationships that have four, that are four deep. Russos, I believe, are four deep. There's four Russos. And these are, this is what's running our courts. And if you comprehend it right, these courts are actual banks. Right. And, you know, in the end, so what a lot of my research came down to that I, I found that most people weren't looking at is, um, who does what, what's their duty, what's their job? And what I've come to find out now, so you have a hierarchy of people. So if you're talking about a cop or, or a CPS agent, it, it's the same. So your hierarchy here is that if, if a cop or a CPS agent wants to either make an arrest or take a child, they first have to contact the state's attorney before actually doing it. You know, now that's not to say that in an emergency situation, they can't take action. But even after that action is taken, they still have to, at the best, most convenient time, call the state's attorney. So you have an indoctrinator here. So these attorneys are telling these people to act outside their authority and their scope. And the question is, why? So you have an attorney who absolutely understands that certain information must be present before one can consider you to have been guilty of that particular behavior, of that particular conduct. They have to understand that they have to do an investigation that's full and complete, right? So we don't just look at you because somebody said you're an offender. We have to look at the, the person making the complaint. This would complete an investigation. So the cop now can be construed as, or the CPSS agent, could be construed as being negligent in their investigative duties. But now when we go to the attorneys, they are also negligent, both in their investigative duties and also in their uh, legal capacity because their uh, ethics codes require that they don't bring frivolous actions into the court. That's the whole point of having a license to practice in the court is because the court guarantees that these attorneys are competent and have a high moral standard not to bring frivolous actions into the court. They have completely failed us for the last 30 years because what we found in Sessions versus DeMaia, Johnson's versus United States, and Stokeling versus United States is that the definition of violent is one who is an aggressor 
physically forcing another person to do something by which that person resists. That's the definition of violent. So if we look at domestic violence, anybody who didn't put themselves into a physically forcible position could still be charged with domestic violence, but they don't fit the associative personality class of a violent person. And therefore, the legislature made a mistake, an error, I'm sure on accident, by including that class of persons with a violent class they never belonged with. And all these judges and all these attorneys have been running amok on it. Oh, you committed domestic violence. What do you mean, sir? I broke a toy. I broke a glass. I threw a ball, whatever. Nope, that's domestic violence. Take you to jail. No. Why? because you cannot force association. You cannot force association of a guy who just had a little temper tantrum with the same likes of a criminal class of persons because a criminal person means you have a disability to care about other people, sociopath. So when they say you are a criminal, it means you're a sociopath. So if you threw an emotional tantrum but had no intent to hurt anybody, how do we include you in a sociopathic class of persons that do not have the ability to have compassion or empathy for another party? But this is what they've been doing for 30 years without getting caught until now. And they don't like it. They don't like it. They don't know what to say to it. They're stuck like Chuck. So if yeah, we look, are. yeah, they're if we look at yes, it's the same thing. You, you know what? The, I, uh, Trey, Trey, there, uh, I had a conversation uh, about a year ago with an attorney I know. And a lot of people, you know, we know that attorneys are bound to take care of the state, et cetera, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. And that their client pretty much comes last on the pipeline. Um, but in They're my lying. conversation with him, uh, right, well, but in my conversation with him, he said, Brian, you don't comprehend the position that the bar association is in i said what are you talking about he said with all the funding that the federal government and the state does we are funded the least he says our association gets very very little money so what does that mean that means they are stuck in a position where they need to make sure every so-called air quote client gets busted so they can soak money out of the public. So if people can kind of put their mind around that, the top side is putting pressure on their people on the lower side by not giving them money. That way those people will hit the rest of us harder. If that makes sense right. to you. Yeah, and it, it, it has a trickle-down effect. So like I said, if we look at what the attorney's supposed to be doing and what the judges are supposed to be doing, they have a moral obligation and duty to the court. So the court, like I said, lets them do what they do because they guarantee that, number one, so the, the American Bar Association guarantees that they received an education making them competent. But the court guarantees that they have moral integrity. So that moral integrity means that when I see you, another attorney, 
classifying or falsely associating a non-criminal with a criminal class, it's my moral obligation to stop you from doing that on my own accord. I shouldn't need somebody else to come in and do that. That's why I have integrity. So that integrity problem is huge. We need to go to these attorneys and start putting their asses on the hot seat. So if you have an attorney that you identify has not done his competent due diligence to protect you from being associated with a lower level class idiot, then we need to go say, hello, Mr. Attorney, did you know how to interpret the statute or are you incompetent? See, because it can only go one of two ways. Either you're incompetent or your deliberate actions are intended to harm me. Why would you wanna do that? But you can't have it both ways. It's either one or the other. So we go to our brother, right? Because why? If you paid an attorney, you have an established relationship where you have reasonable expectation of honest services and the reasonable expectation that those services include competent legal defense. If he is not competently defending your, your cause or has overlooked something very important to your case, and you pointed out, the question is, Mr. Attorney, what's your intent? Do you intend on correcting this error? Or do you intend on letting this error hurt me and cause for a miscarriage of justice, which is actually in violation not only of your ethical code, but is also in dishonor of the court who relies upon you to have moral integrity, thereby destroying the integrity of the court itself. What are you going to do here, sir? I've sent these letters. Do you know what they say? Nothing. No argument, no defense. And they do things that are strange, like put signs up in courtrooms. <laughs> they withdraw from cases. They never admit error. Ever, 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 ever. They never say, crap, you're, you're right. I have integrity. Let me fix what I've done wrong. That never happens. But what they do sometimes do is back out, withdraw from the case, switch judges, pass things around. But otherwise, dead air, silence, because they don't have any logical explanation to, tell, to define what they just did to you. They can't say it was an error because then they look like incompetent schmucks. Well, their view, their, view, their view of integrity is not our view of integrity because well, it, that really comes down to where. <laughs> yeah, right. But it really comes down to where does the loyalty lie when it comes to integrity? They've held integrity according to where their loyalty lies at when it comes well, to that's you and I. That, that there's an established relationship for which I paid you for. If you have a relationship with your fellow bar members and the court that is superior to that of what I'm explaining to you here today, then that's okay. I'm not going to be mad at you. I can't fault you for it. Perhaps I had an unreasonable expectation. Perhaps I mistakenly erred what you were saying to mean something other than it did. There could be a mistake here, Mr. Attorney. But I need to know, what are your intentions? Is it your intentions to serve the bar and the court in, an, in a way that I feel doesn't look like it has integrity and, and, and high moral standards? Or is it your intent to fulfill your obligation in our relationship? 
let's list it out. What's your obligation in our relationship? Do the bar member ethics apply? Because if they do, they actually explain in the ethical code of the bar association that an attorney absolutely must speak to a client who is bringing forth false claims of fact. It is the attorney's responsibility and obligation to do his due diligent investigation in order to find out if her client, the claimant, is telling her the truth. It's her job. Do it. Both sides. So if you're dealing with the attorney on your side representing you, you also have to deal with the attorney on the victim side, right? So if you're if you're saying that my ex-wife claimed that I scared her and that she experienced fear, well, my attorney, I'm going to ask you, what evidence did they provide to you showing that her fear is validated? And is there evidence to prove that my behavior is associated with a class of violent persons as defined by law? Someone who physically forces another party to do something that party physically resists. If I don't fit into a class of violent persons, then we need to come up with something other than domestic violence as a definition for what you're trying to say I, I did. Because statutory law requires that that title gives full information and notice. They said violent. But right. if it says violent, all violent offenses have to fall under it. And nothing outside of violent can be in there. They have to, to separate it or take it out altogether. That's the whole point. Right. And it has the to be case specific. Years haven't done that. Mm -hmm. Right. It has to be, it has to be case specific. Uh, just like uh, I heard a case um, a couple days ago of there was a few people in an area and they went and arrested one woman for not practicing social distancing or whatever. And it's like, wait a minute, that's total. Ar that's totally arbitrary. You were picking out one individual. You need to arrest everybody in that area doing the same thing. Because otherwise, that is totally incorrect. You, you, that is a total they, arbitrary arrest. But they had when a you go in, today. When you go into what the attorney's um, oath is really to, it's it's first to the courts, and who else is their oath through? It's through the bar association. Then uh, their obligation is to the public. And guess what? You're not the public. And then, lastly, their obligation is to the client. Why does the client end up last? And that's in corpus juris secundum. Right, and and this is this is not supposed to happen. Okay, so you could put the client last as long as you don't uh, as long as you don't fail in your performance obligation to the client. So always, the goal is always to administer justice fairly. That's the that's the obligation that all of them have to the court, first and foremost. So if that administration of justice isn't being done equally and fairly, then somebody here in this little triangle is screwing up the system. Right. So if we all know that the, the plaintiff's attorney, the defense attorney and the judge all understand the concept of categorical approach by legislatures 
They all know what that means. I'm not, I'm not an attorney. How come I know what it means and you don't? So if they all know what that means, how is it that it got through three people without ever being identified? No one ever said, hold on a minute. The legislators isn't correct here. They can't include you into a class of persons that is violent unless you can be uh, proven to have been violent, a.k.a. physically forcing somebody who resisted something. You can't, you can't be included in that class. It's an impossibility. It doesn't make logical sense. It won't meet the rationale standard and all the various scientific standards that the courts apply to these cases. And the attorneys have done nothing, absolutely zero, to prevent this kind of injustice that has been done in these nonviolent, crappy courts. Look at marriage. The, the definition of criminal punishment means any type of punishment application that will make your life less worth living. They decided that an immigrant who would get put back into his own country because we don't like him for whatever he did, that that would be a criminal punishment of an immigrant because putting him in a country he's not no longer used to would make his life unworth living. So let's look at divorce and let's talk about the punishment of divorce. Number one, you lose your children, lose time with them. Is that a punishment that makes your life unworth living? You lose your house, your assets. Is that a punishment that makes your life less worth living? You're going to end up losing all kinds of things through a divorce proceeding. The amount of time it takes to get through the court process, your dignity, your respect, your ability to establish a new relationship that will flower and grow. If there's any accusations that are ugly, you lose your entire uh, societal acceptance. Don't get accused of domestic violence when you're not a violent person because boy, that will ruin your record, ruin your opportunity for a job. There's so many punishments that comes with a divorce. And if I were to ask you, if I could let you keep your children, keep your house, keep your assets, keep your reputation, keep your dignity and your self-respect, but you serve six months in jail in, that, in the place of all of that, what would you choose? In a heartbeat, I would say most people would take six months in jail if they knew they could come back to life as normal. But that's not what we're doing in that room. We are totally taking away your liberty, your property, and everything under the sun for what? Because you didn't make it through a relationship? Does the punishment fit the crime? Well, you know what, Trey? Trey, you know, a situation like that, which happens all the time, uh, we cannot help but um, not venture into Title 4D because this is placing the individuals in such a position, you're talking about a, a life not worth living, you know, and being destroyed. And the majority of these situations like a divorce or whatever, where they've decided to uh, have a dirty three-way with the state when they got married, 
instead of just having a contract between two people. Now, they're separating the children, they're separating property and things like that. And so what's really happening? What's happening typically is that the female gets the children, which isn't a bad thing, but they're doing it for a reason because a female typically makes less money. And since she's making less money, that means she's going to be reliant on the state, which keeps their Title IV-D programs going. It keeps the federal money coming into the state. Well, yeah, remember, they're, they're always going to lean towards that, always. Yeah, I remember looking into Texas about a year ago, and I think they were bringing in like $850 million from the state through their Title IV-D program. And... So, yeah, yeah it's not about is, protecting the family. It's about is, taking care of the state. Yeah, Title IV D is paid to them for for them to report the uh, behavioral observational research. That's all they're getting paid to do. It has nothing to do with them taking children or conducting arrests or stopping crime, per se. It's about conducting the research necessary to determine what kinds of crimes exist in that neighborhood, what kinds of abuses exist in that neighborhood, and what types of behaviors offend the people of the community. That's what they're they're getting paid for. That's what the federal money is actually for. It's for them to spy on you, in a nutshell. To spy on you and to report back to big mommy and daddy upstairs so that they can develop these patterns of behavior in order to predict what will happen in the future so they can improve the outcomes for future people. And that's that's why the money gets passed through. And it's it's so it, it just never ends the amount of money. The the research itself is paid for. The services that are opened up are typically opened up and either controlled by or owned by the attorneys themselves or the judges. So they're giving you these services that they're taking you into court to force upon you that they're making money off of. It's a, it's a vicious, vicious circle. It's grotesque. But that's why. I'm well, well, you know what, Trey, you know, we're talking about behavior and how they're capitalizing on behavior tonight. And so I think it would be remiss to not identify what's happening in our real time today, where we've got states forcing people to wear a mask, different uh, things like that. And right what are they doing? They're controlling your behavior. And if you're not put up with. right, they they want to see how much they can get away with. Is what I look at, and you know, and depending on how well the people all uh, follow these mandates and things like that that the different governors are putting out, they're determining the behavior of the people. And in some instances, like I said, you know, with somebody in a park getting arrested for taking their child to a park. You know, it, what they're doing is coming down and saying, oh, your behavior is incorrect. And they're labeling you according to your behavior. And at the same time, this is one of the things that gets me. Because I refuse to wear a mask. I know what they're about. I know it actually harms you more than it can help you because it can't help you at all. The CDC well, we have a difference of we, Everyone has a difference of opinion on that. Even the scientists and the doctors do. Well, but my, my opinion doesn't come from my opinion. I've gone and read the white papers on what they talk about, what the masks were created for, how they're supposed to work, what they really do, and that that's where I get my opinion or belief or whatever you want to say from. But 
they say one thing behind the scenes, and then when they get in front of a mic, they say something completely different. And what they're doing is they are doing a behavioral operation, a behavioral exercise on the public right now today. And And that's why they pay protesters is because those protesters are set up specifically to conduct these research studies. They're, They're there to see if they can provoke the emotions of opposing groups and then report back on the kind of responses that they get because those responses demonstrate the people get offended by that type of speech and then they'll create legislation prohibiting that specific type of speech. That's the point of those things. Right. They'll form it around it. And they're actually what I would call sick shaming people. They're sick shaming you. Whereas even there's various stores that are even having one way aisles in them now. And I had a woman several weeks ago that she walked by, she's wearing a mask and everything. And she just kind of whispered to me as she was walking past me. She said, you're walking the wrong way. And I thought, oh, my God, now the the slaves are policing the slaves. This is what this is the ultimate goal. (laughs) Well, yeah, how it works, like I said, is so, for example, we have three study groups that are being played right now. We have the I'm afraid to be six group. Then you have the. I'm a nurse and you're insulting me group if you don't do as I say because I'm afraid of uh, getting overwhelmed and making bad decisions. And then we have like the freedom fighter groups, those who are protesting outside of it. So what we did here is we established three, three passionate groups of people who have the same thing in mind, but nobody can see it. Group number one is afraid of illness and afraid that you will get sick and everyone else will get sick. This is a very compassionate purpose behind why they're complaining. Group number two, the nurses, are afraid that they will have to pull the plug on people they don't want to have to pull the plug on. This is a very loving act. This is a very caring, protective nature. And then we have the freedom fighters who don't want you to be starved to death and oppressed by government. So we have three three groups of people who actually have the most loving intent, and yet they fight against each other for loving each other. It's like the gift of the magi. You're like, how do you, how do you get people to see that everybody has the best intentions for everybody else in this mix? There's no reason to fight. There's no reason to be angry or want to see other people get punished for not agreeing with you. There's no reason for that because each group has the same thing in mind, protecting their country, protecting the people in it, just in a different way. And they don't want us to see that in each other because it doesn't make money. So now group number one is ticked off because group number three won't put on a mask and won't stay home. Group number two is ticked off at group number three because group number three won't put on a mask and won't stay home. Now we have all these people saying the same thing from group number three. It's fake. It's over embellished. It's not what you think it is. The scientists are lying. So we will now say, because we have the combination of two groups that have more people than that singular group, that the majority has spoken and that the speech from the freedom group saying that we know we don't uh, believe in this or the scientists are lying or somebody's corrupt. 
that kind of speech is offensive. And we will create legislation to prohibit that kind of speech based on that study. And that's why you keep seeing all of these crazy protests that provoke emotions and get everybody up to the, you know, all heated and angry at each other. They may not have thought about it at all at one point until they saw it on the news. Nurses were not pissed at anybody until it came up on the news. Oh, these people don't respect you. If they, if they use their freedom of speech and their freedom of assembly, you should feel insulted because you might have to pull the plug. And because of them, you might have to make decisions you don't like. Because of them, you might be overwhelmed. And then everybody sitting there watching that crap is like, oh, that's true. Oh my God, I never thought about that. These people are so disrespectful. And then you have all these people upset. And now they start pumping it out on Facebook. And remember, Facebook collects that information and reports it. So how many people are complaining from the nurse side? How many people are complaining from the freedom side? How many, like, and they will actually conduct a study on that information in order to say, majority of the people are offended by the exercise of free speech if they think you're a conspiracy theorist. Watch, next, next, next piece of legislation we're gonna see, see hit the tables. And that's how they do it. But what can you do? Yeah. You can't get people to see past that. It reminds me of a statement. I, I can't recall who made it. But uh, the statement was, uh, the truth exists in the majority of one. Which means, and this is what we've seen the past few weeks, is that the media, the majority of one, is coming out, telling everybody what's going on, and so everybody thinks this is what's happening. I remember I walked outside a couple weeks ago, and one of my neighbors was outside. And I said, hey, bro, how you doing? He said, oh, dude, people are dying. And I looked around, and I was like, where? Oh, on your TV? Oh, okay. And that's the sad thing that's happening. But we're knocking on the door of an hour and a half here. So I thought maybe we could... Um, this down it I think people look at different shows and stuff and they see like two or three hours and like oh, they don't even bother even though it could be very valuable <laughs> like you know what I mean yeah, yeah. I agree. you're getting back into that consensus uh, mentality which is what this is all about it's really about mm -hmm. a consensus reality they are creating the reality for you and people are accepting that reality they're accepting that behavior and falling right into it without even stopping and thinking for themselves. Um, right. Next next week, I've got uh, Clint Richardson coming on. Hopefully. I'm like 99% sure Clint Richardson is going to be back on. He's been on before. Um, you can find his material. It's called Meet Your Straw Man on WordPress on his blog site there. And he's got hours and hours of great interesting information he's going to be coming on hopefully um in between then i think i'm going to be doing a midweek with a friend of mine greg and we're going to be talking about some of these things as well uh trey i love having you on and i really think people need to pay attention to the behavioral aspect of this because just like you said earlier trey said you know doesn't matter if you had dui oh they've got classes for you oh if you are going through a divorce, oh, they've got classes for you. Oh, and oh, by the oh, by the way, 
If you have children and you're going through a divorce, oh, yeah, now there's some extra classes for you. They've got all these things where they are monitoring your behavior. That's what it's all about. They're controlling you. It's, this is a service industry now. And this is a service they are offering you. Um, do you want to close out with something, Trey? And Keith, if you're still here, my co-host. Um, I know you've been kind of under the weather or whatever lately. And you can come on as well and close out with us. Um, go ahead, Trey. Yeah, just um, go ahead and check out my channel. I've put up a few videos to break things down as simply as possible. And I'm actually showing you the statutes and how they read so that you can come to understand where the obligations and duties of your officers are and where they're prohibited. And I'm going to help you guys kind of try to understand better when you're obligated to perform and when you're not. So it'll be broken down for your, your learning enjoyment. I highly recommend you do because we can't keep going this way, friends. It's not going to be pretty if we don't do anything now. And I, sometimes I even feel like we're already too late. So just keep learning. For those of you who are just beginning or just learning things, go to my channel. It's a really basic stuff. It's not real complex. Start learning there. I'll keep posting. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I've had Trey on is because these are the people I listen to. This is the research I look at is people who don't just offer opinion but they say, this is what it's based on. Here's the documentation. Here's the statutes. Here is what they're using to do what they're doing. Um, if you just want to hear opinion, you can go sit down at the corner bar with a bunch of old men and listen to them bitch all day long, which is <laughs> most of what, <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the majority of what you really hear on YouTube today. You hear a lot of people complaining and making claims but they don't show you the documents. True. Yeah, and I th very true. I think you got to. I think you got to see the documents. Um, I don't know if Keith is still here. If you wanted to give a closing as well, I guess maybe he's not. That's all right. Um, you know, people. Like I close out every week and say, because people ask. Well, where do I look? What do I start researching? And this is what I tell everybody. There's three basic things. You need to learn who you really are, where you're really from, and where you're really at. Because you've been deceived on all three levels. Start figuring those things out. You'll be leaps and bounds ahead of other people. You really, really will. Gotta learn what's ruling things today. Trey, thank you very much tonight, dear. Yeah, and um, I don't know if you saw this, but Keith said he's muted out. <laughs> really? Okay, hold on a second. Let me double check that. Because he had been starred. And we've got uh, Greg Simmons with us this evening. Uh, Greg, hopefully I'm planning on maybe Tuesday or Wednesday doing a midweek call with you. Um. I don't know how Keith, the co-host, ended up getting muted out, but he's not anymore. He's only muted on his own end. So, okay. Keith, 
Okay. There he is. Yeah, okay. you're all good. I got I I got knocked off the call earlier, and maybe when I came back on, that that happened because I had uh, kept all three of us got, open earlier. Off. So, oh, okay, yeah, that's what happened. All right, go ahead, but anyway, um, to go right in line with uh, what Trey is conveying here, it's all about statistics, and we're the ones giving them that information, and this is all clarified. Um, showing us exactly where we're at today, whereas where America's uh, supposedly coming on to a reset, monetary reset, where everybody's going to be fine, Danny and Hunky and Dory. And this is same kind of propaganda that Germany used in World War II. And I made a note of it in the comments. I suggest everybody read a book called Hitler's Willing Executioners. And these are the people that we're, we're talking about here with Trey. They're the ones processing all this information in the census and, and every document that you sign in the courts and through the school registration and marriage license and the driver's license. Everything is a contract under their trust laws. It's all for banking reasons. And it's all done under the propaganda of statistics, which you apply to by registering and signing documents yourself. So I highly yeah, suggest and reading. And just on, a, on that note, I just want to let you guys know that I got spun up on the on the human subject research topic because I watched the Nuremberg trials and I read a few journals that the uh, attorneys had done investigation to find out how Hitler gained the um, agreement of the German population. This is how I found out about human subject research because it was their system that we're using. <laughs> Yeah, you read that. Hitler's that working executioners. <laughs> yeah, if if oh, you if you read Project that book, Paperclip. Yeah, well, um, uh, something else I'll note here, um, but but before I do, I I highly suggest again everybody read that book and you'll see exactly what it is. It's exactly where we're at today. Um, we were talking about an industrial revolution back then. We're using, um, I I would prefer a uh, a term called electric revolution or electronic information revolution, where all this information is being transferred to electronic devices um, for, for uh, purposes of being, being able to make transfers without the actual signature, just an intent of signature, which could come from almost anybody. But then uh, the, the next point is that we have to realize that all these people that are just willing executioners are part of that same indoctrination. And this is, again, what uh, mm. Trey was speaking. This has been coming on for decades. It happened the same way in Germany. Before Hitler even came to rise, the Nazi party was in progress for, uh, I believe, four decades. So before he even came to rise, the public was already being indoctrinated into that system, just like we see people today. Yep. Yep. Pattern of behavior also applies to history. If you if you go back in history, history repeats itself, it's pattern of behavior. And if you can identify the patterns, you'll you'll move along a lot quicker in learning and understanding these things. Absolutely. I, I, I like what um, Mark Twain, also known as Samuel Clemens said. He said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And uh, yeah, that is so true. It rhymes. It it goes step in step, 
lockstep, if I might say, use the word lockstep for those that know that word. <laughs> it goes in lockstep with each other. Uh, thank you, Trey. Thanks, Keith. Um, like I said, uh, Greg has been listening in, and hopefully Tuesday or Wednesday um, we'll have a call set up with him. Um, we've been doing like regular just weekly calls for the past few years, but I think that right now it might be time to step it up and maybe do a couple a week. Hey, we've got time, right? <laughs> and go check out the info from Trey. Uh, her channel for YouTube is in the description box for tonight's podcast. And also go look up the information from the co-hosts that we have this evening, uh, Keith Little. Uh, you can find Keith Little on Facebook pretty easily. Um, easiest way is maybe just go and do a search in Tactical Sovereignty and look up his name. And then go from there. Anyway, um, good night, everybody. And uh, Trey and Keith, go ahead and say good night, and we'll close out. Good night, everybody. And I am putting my... Uh, uh, Facebook uh, page name or title, whatever you want to call it here in the chat box. And just like uh, Brian says, you got to know um, who you are, where you're at, and uh, where you're coming from. And, and this is in direct regards to your legacy and what is actual and true. You do not come from a sheet of paper. You do not come from a statistic. You come from a legacy. And that is a, a passing on. And this is what this fictional world calls death. But when your legacy passes on, it, it passes on from an original source. And that's what we're talking about here. The original source of the information that this system is getting is, is based on a fictional person. And that's the part we have to correct. Thank everybody for absolutely. joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Keith. We are absolutely coming from a legacy. And we're actually coming from our first estate. And we need to Correct. administrate our estate. And that's In the problem. trustee position. Have. Absolutely. Good night, yeah. everybody. And we'll catch you in a couple days. Everybody be blessed. Everybody be blessed. Learn who you really are. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.